All right, good evening and welcome. Um, thank you all for coming out uh, to hear a talk on the great books on a rainy spring uh, evening. My name is Nathaniel Peters, and I'm the executive director of the Morningside Institute um, and a lecturer in the Center for Medical Ethics at Columbia. The Morningside Institute is an independent scholarly endeavor dedicated to examining human life through the liberal arts. And we organize seminars, reading groups, conferences, and lectures like this one, uh, as well as outings that help students integrate the beauty of culture in New York City um, with their search for the truth in their studies. And we hope that programs uh, like these give students and professors an opportunity to come together outside of the classroom, to live the intellectual life in a spirit of friendship, to see how their religious and moral commitments connect to their studies, and to think about coherent frameworks that can hold together the knowledge that they acquire in disparate disciplines. If you'd like to join us for other events, uh, you can visit our website, uh, you can pick up uh, one of our brochures in the back, uh, or see my colleague Sergio, there by the door, um, to get on our email list if you're not already on it. We would welcome that. A bit of background about uh, the event this evening. In 1917, uh, the English professor John Erskine proposed a new course at Columbia University. In his words, he, quote, wanted the boys to read great books, the bestsellers of ancient times, as spontaneously and humanly as they would read current bestsellers. I wanted them to form their opinions at once in a free-for-all discussion. In doing so, he argued, the students would develop, quote, a remarkable store of information, ideas about literature and life, and perhaps an equal wealth of aesthetic emotions which they shared in common. Here would be the true scholarly and cultural basis for human understanding and communication, unquote. Two years later, in the fall of 1919, Introduction to Contemporary Civilization in the West was introduced, with many characteristics that still mark Columbia's core curriculum today. There are some who argue uh, that contemporary civilization is not, properly speaking, a great books course. This is something that I've been corrected on by a professor who I'll see tomorrow, but I forgot he wasn't here tonight, so I could have gotten away with this. Um, but there's no question uh, that CC and its sister literature, Humanities, helped inspire the great books movement throughout American higher education. The centennial of CC, I think, then marks an important anniversary not just in the history of Columbia University, but in the history of the Humanities, in America, and it comes at a time when we hear much more about the crisis of the humanities uh, than about their flourishing. This anniversary should therefore prompt those of us who care about humanistic inquiry and the reading of great books to think about what we are doing and why. And I can think of no better tutor to help us in this exercise than Eva Braun, born in Berlin, Miss Braun, I had written Professor Braun, but I'm told that at St. John's you are Mr. or Miss. So Miss Braun emigrated to the United States uh, at an early age. She received her BA from Brooklyn College, her MA in Classics, and PhD in Archaeology from Yale University. Since 1957, she has taught at St. John's College in Annapolis, which makes her the longest-serving tutor there, and I would expect one of the longest-serving professors at any college 
in the United States, and I would venture in the history of the United States. Among her many accolades, uh, she has received an honorary doctorate from Middlebury College and was awarded in 2005 the National Humanities Medal. Ms. Braun will speak to us tonight on the question of whether the phrase great books has any determinate meaning, and her talk will serve as one of the papers for a small colloquium that Morningside is hosting tomorrow for professors from schools with great books programs. Ms. Braun, we're deeply honored to have you with us this evening. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. So the title is just the phrase, great books have a determinate meaning. Can you hear me? Yes. My title is a question. And since I do not believe that one's answer, the thesis, should be withheld like the solution of a mystery until the page before the last, I shall give it up front. Since presumably most people still know what a book is, I assume that the difficulty I often hear about great books lies with the word great, an etymologically unpromising word. It doesn't have an etymology that tells you anything. Does it denote that word great, a real, perhaps even a natural category, and does it have a legitimate arbiter or arbiters? I think that the answer to both parts of the question is definitively yes, and that it is the business of those who use and propagate the phrase to articulate the answer, to say what it means to claim that some books are indeed great, and that those who make this claim have not so much the right as the duty to articulate the meaning. One note more about the phrase, I think, the beginning of my answer. This I think does not mean I think this and you think that, true for me and true for you, to each his own. I mean, on the contrary, I think this. And since a thought is the weightiest object the world contains, what I really mean is, if I truly think so, that thought lends the gravity of truth, of being the truth bearer, not to me, but to my object. It also means that if we speak our thoughts out clearly enough, they will turn out to be, in many respects, common. There will, of course, be opinions, yours and mine, and terminally particular things that are insuperably idiosyncratic. The standing of certain personally favorite books will probably be among these. Someone might reasonably say that the adjective great and all its benign wooliness, such as in have a great day, is best off left alone. A program of learning, be its agent anything from a whole college to a small program at a university, may make them read difficult, deep, and original books behind the scenes, but babble up front about teaching its students to be independent thinkers and productive citizens. The former of these independent thinkers 
is assuredly an impossibility. In fact, a self-contradiction, that is, to make people independent, to make them independent thinkers. The latter is probably a dubious good, depending on what's being produced. I'm serious in my doubt about these two mantras of institutions defending liberal education. To me, liberal teaching is not about messing with students' minds, but consists of putting before them, before them examples, works of large intellect and fine sensibility, whose quality I'm about to delineate, while enforcing not moral, but intellectual virtues from listening first of all to oneself, and next with corresponding interest to others, and then willingly responding, however ineptly that may at first be, down to the proofreading of papers and putting commas in reasonable places. While further to expand this too long sentence, offering oneself as a model of abiding interest in such works of, intellect, of, of excellence. And as for that productive citizenry, I'd go along if we could agree that sometimes most eventuates when the least is produced, when human beings just are. Besides, not all products are, are so welcome. For example, lawyers refer to their briefs as work products and charge accordingly. One more preliminary, closer now to the great books question. College is in trouble, and which isn't, with underpaid faculties and overwrought administrations. Except money, hundreds of thousands of dollars to call in consultants. We've had one that was modestly that modestly expressed ignorance and set about learning. That is and actually a good consultant. Others knew everything in general and nothing much in particular. They were sponge-like about current preoccupations and tin-eared about well-wearing traditions. Then they issued recommendations that might buy us a few years of, of existence and bring about the prompt demise of our essence. The great books were an attractive nuisance to them. They claim to know from their research that if books are toxic with prospective college students, great books are positively leprous. It's nonsense, of course. Teenagers come, as they always have, in all intellectual modes. Some are bookworms from way back and have gnawed their way into the center of the written world long ago. Some have been snaffled later into reading by one particular book that got to them. And some have looked over the wall into an enticingly alien realm to which they felt ready to immigrate. All three modes have brought us our students. Whence comes this animus against great books that inept polling seems to confirm? But inept is the wrong word. The polling and the questionnaire isn't incompetent. It's simply skewed. I raise the question because the detailed justification and applied praise of great books is involved with a false perception of what our young care about. What 
or rather who skews the intellectual life. I want to say it is using the term disparaging as a type, that it's the intellectual. In my sense, an intellectual is a producer, one of those productive citizens, a producer of thought packets, idea bundles called concepts, devising and employing concepts, cultivating a conceptualizing mind is, it seems to me, close cousin to being an ideologist. Ideology is a term with a respectable past. For instance, Thomas Jefferson was the American proponent of, proponent of a French movement, a philosophy of mind, called ideology. Marx evidently originated the seriously derogatory use of the term ideology as a false, self-serving class consciousness. In its current use, the one I mean, Ideology is the thought-divorced, indiscriminate application of certain conceptual bundles to all matters political, from far left to far right. I think that study by means of great books is a concept-mongering and ideology-attearing preventative that it can deflect intellectualism into thoughtfulness. That's the broader setting. That's the broader setting from which I'm speaking. Let me come to the end of these preliminaries to say as forthrightly, forthrightly as I can, what more particular frame of mind is apt to want to quash great books as a learning matter? I can discern three main notions. One is a utilitarian propensity. Education is admitted to need an apology for existing. Reading old books of no easily discernible application to active life is not a preparation worth paying for. So an excuse must be offered, namely a vocational intention. Vocational is a degraded term. The pristine meaning of a vocation is a calling, and one intention of liberal education is certainly that a student might find a vocation, a calling, a work that can preoccupy their hearts and souls. The second notion, inimical to great books, is the current version into which that dreary old historicism has morphed, the confident attribution of agency to conceptions that are entirely incapable of any practical activity by reason of lacking personhood such as time, society, culture. When the human condition is diagnosed in various disciplines, is credited to or blamed on any of these three, books need not be read as communicating common truths in particular voices. These texts can then be superseded by textbookish abstraction mush and trendy opinion having, such as do indeed appear to have been indicted by time society, or culture. I hasten to, see, to say here that I'm an avid reader of anthropology, which seems to me to require a very specific talent for devotedly hoovering up pertinent detail and cleanly discerning accurate generalities, temporal, social, and cultural generalizations that have some hope of being convertible 
into human universals. My personal hero in this line is Herodotus, the founder of such inquiries, and one of his successors, Clifford Carrots. The third notion, unfriendly to, to great books, is in what I think of as megalomaniac morality, the indifference to small individual harm, like taking the contents out of a found wallet, in favor of demonstrating outrage at large social evils, replacing the self-repression of foregoing small loot by engaging the self-expansion of moral display in a crowd. In this frame of mind, the charge of elitism is brought against great books. It is factually absurd, since the Anglo-Saxon great books movement originated in English workmen's institutes. And of course, some of these books show more social sympathy than the critics have heart for. In my experience, the attacks on great books come not only from a source I haven't yet mentioned, a hyper-sophisticated view of writing, of reading, of authors, and of authority that bars the way to simply taking up and reading a text, the simple way necessary to an undergraduate great books program. The attacks come from harried administrators worried about declining enrollment, enrollment from somewhat absent-minded professors who think that paraphrases are clearer, briefer, and more efficient than the originals, and from academics who long ago, be it out in the so-called real world, read Plato's Republic under, the, under duress 20 years ago, and came away with a demonstrably false notion that it is intended as a political blueprint for what is obviously a dystopia. They saw Pride and Prejudice in several movie versions in which people most inauthentically kiss each other and know of the brothers Karamazov only from that infamous snippet, The Grand Inquisitor. I'm sure that it is, necess that it is necessary to summon very specific sorts of sympathy for people who opine about things they're pretty ignorant of and people who decide in a panic mode. The former deserve gentle nudging toward actual acquaintance. The latter advi deserve advice with a back backup of backbone. I've thought about this a lot and always come out with a similar sense. Don't give in to contingencies and conditions. True practicality is in jealously guarding carefully evolved settings. And that means in every significance-leading detail, or else it's not worth a world worth working in. For example, the exchange, say, of a room with chairs around a table for a hall with chairs and rows. And matters of learning efficiency is ineffective. To me, that means that some tweaking can usually be harmless but it has to be done by those who have the experience, understanding, and above all, the love to do it cannily. And that's the last thing I want to say about the maintenance of great books learning, which is to me the best instantiation of serious liberal education. Don't give in, just do it better. So now to a delineation of the greatness 
of great books. I have ten marks of the notion, but I will be concise to the point of being cursory. Number one, I think that great is a discernible characteristic distinct from good. Setting out the marks of greatness discursively is an unending task, but there might be somatic indices that are more immediate. My teacher at Brooklyn College, who brought me to Homer, once revealed to a largely unmoved class, as I recall, her unearned sign that a book was great. The hair on the back of your neck bristles. Can't think of a better index. Is great books in a natural category? Of course it's natural, insofar as it's natural to human beings to mark to make artifacts. As anyone knows, who has had, for example, the incomparable experience of seeing the original Paleolithic cave paintings of Lascaux in the Dordogne, done some 150 centuries ago. And it's a category insofar as there is a simple, unbridgeable chasm between the great and the many good and competently produced books Fond readers like myself snuff up with appreciative pleasure. There's even a competence for mediocrity, books not deeply soul-satisfying, but pleasingly time-killing, the traveler's solace, the airport book. <clears throat> How else, if great books aren't a given class, would it happen that people who have actually read such works will so often and so readily agree on the classification. After all, great books lists have been made, accepted, and revised since, since antiquity. For example, Quintilian of the first century clearly had such a list. Our own great, great books list at St. John's is derivative from the one devised in the late 19th century for the English Workers and Mechanics Institutes. Whatever particular marks I'll now continue to propose, the main justification for the title great is our experience. Spend a weekend talking to friends about Hamlet and how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable now seems ordinary if worthy poetry, the kind I think of as musing and free verse. But that's not quite right. These books aren't snobbish and abruptly discreet, though the experience them is, of them is. They live in a camaraderie continuum with they actually validate the huge reservoir of respectable and the trash heap of radical literature. I don't quite know how it works. I doubt that anyone does. But the fact that so many people in my acquaintance, for example, express the micromotions of their souls in that very forgiving free verse and evolve complex plots for far-fetched novels, that they respect superior models and readily read each other's work, functions somehow as the greenhouse in which a black orchid may someday flower among the bromeliads. Similarly, for the concept, and concept inventions of lesser philosophy, Though small in scope, yet they are on a spectrum with grand visions perhaps to come. 
an afterthought. Are there subject genres accepting card pornography inherently incapable of greatness? Well, The Brothers Karamazov is a murder mystery, and some current mysteries, like In Dredetson Jar City and Mason's Black Diamond, are high on the spectrum of excellence. So no subject seems to me to carry inherent limitations on distinction. Number two, the term great can, of course, apply to all kinds of human art, to all the style genres of writing, lyric poetry, long epics, drama, tragic and comic fiction, and particularly that peculiarly modern kind, the novel, that is to say the narrative that is squeezed more on new stories than on old myths. So also does it, of course, apply to visual works, two and three-dimensional, that is to painting, sculpture, and most particularly to musical compositions, be they pure or mated with liturgies like cantatas and with libretti like operas. Moreover, great may assuredly apply to works of the intellectual, of the intellect directed to an essentially static field of non-sensory matter, that is mathematics, or to mobile immatic nature, that is science. I mean that terms of motion are metaphorical in mathematics and intrinsic to nature. It is point for special emphasis. Accounts of mathematics, science, and their technological embodiments are among the great books. Mathematicized nature and the human devices for imposing our will on her should, in fact, be a normal part of great books learning. Let me add, as a pertinent aside, that readers of history come on the term great often. Herodotus announces that his inquiry will preserve the great and wondrous deeds of Greeks and barbarians from oblivion. And when history was still a curricular given in high school, we learned about great kings, Alfred, Elizabeth, Peter, Frederick, or called the great, and there was inegalitarianism even among the royals. Such greatness assignments appeared to be a human propensity, oddly enough, particularly among Americans, although we are the aboriginal adherents to the gospel of equality by reason of a common creation. Many of us have a keen sense of the difference between patented nobility and popular celebrity. My point is, that confronted with the experience of greatness, some of us feel a frisson of expectation, while others sense a stiffening of their defenses, and that these temperamental differences may furnish a broad backdrop to this battle of books. Number three, it is a strong mark of a great book that it invites the questions, what is its subject? What is the hero? What is its intention? So for instance, is Newton's Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy a book of theology, as the author clearly states, or a book of physics, as the reader working through the propositions laboriously discovers? 
is the hero of Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, the angelic Alyosha, or the demonic Smerdyakov, as an alert reader might suspect? Is the main intention of Kant's critique of pure reason to set out the limiting conditions of cognition or to make room for morality? Great books are so inherently initial, so literally original, that they almost always precede compartmentalization. They engage the intellect not only by what they propose, but even by what they are. And what they are is determined largely by the choice of persons, settings, and environments. An adequate gift of divine, divining what complexities a character is capable of developing, what resonances a setting may attune to, and what, what confusions are worth unraveling is surely necessary to engaging with greatness. Number four, great books are inexhaustible. Every reading is a new reading, and that is not only because of the blessing of forgetfulness, which keeps life from becoming a well-born routine, but because of the multitude of meanings missed at the first reading. Such missed valuables vary from tiny, subtle detail to large, imposing scope. For example, there's Homer, the most sophisticated poet that I've ever read. He works with those infamous epithets the one word handles, as they say in the trucking world, that are often ignored and misapplied. But look at them under the presupposition of Homer's incomparable greatness. And what seemed mechanical becomes cunning. For example, when the character's conduct countermands the epithet's meaning. We call, for example, the occasion when Achilles is called by his epithet, swift of foot, while sitting unbudgeably sulking in his tent. Or consider the other end of the for of format, when the character and sections of Odysseus Odysseus precisely and tellingly invert those of the Iliad's Achilles. There's always more for the repeat reader, and when it's not seen as new, it seemed to go deeper. Number five. Such works entail their own modes of education. And one of these is the very liberalism of liberal education. The work is taken up for its own sake, freely, not compulsively, not, compulsively, not as a means to some material profit. Making such works mandatory reading requirements rather than free choices seems at first sight very much at odds with liberal learning. But it is an imposition on the student for the sake of a fuller freedom than, the, than that of abstaining, namely the freedom of talking together, albeit in class, about the experience of being encouraged to be all there, to ask questions, give opinions, even to resist. Indeed, for many students, the path of seduction by books is really the root of sometimes quite vehement rejection. It's not the worst way to get hooked on philosophy, 
to oppose Socrates as a great bully. Closer consideration of the dialogue will duly follow. It is the teacher's duty to guard, we at St. John's call ourselves tutors, guardians, to guard the conversation, to prevent themselves from professing and students from dominating, to protect the conversation from fancy concept, only half understood, yet proud, proudly trotted out, and from current ideologists, ideologies, the sorts that make the non-compliant get hot under the collars. I've said before why I think great books aren't well approached with academic <coughs> conceptualizations and current ideological preoccupations. An example of such a misdeed is the demand, for example, that readers of Mansfield Park should consider why the Burton family refuses to talk about the slave trade in Antigua when Sir Thomas has just returned, or that they believe slavery to be at the center of the novel. Slave trade is mentioned once in the book as a side issue in a tea time conversation preceding a family blow up, for heaven's sake, and the delicious iniquities that the female Bertrams practice toward Prissy Fanny are the making of that novel. In sum, it is the teacher's task to keep students from being talked at, introduced to, or prevented by a, preces, by a preface from confronting immediately a book after all written for them, literate people that they are. Teachers do, to be sure, face a problem, a perennial mystery to me. Even our students, who have often talked their parents into foregoing their own career ambitions for them and making financial sacrifices on their behalf, why do even these willing subjects abstain from arousing interest in themselves, which is a perfectly viable effort? The answer seems to be that late adolescence is at once the best and the worst time for relearning. Since then, the passions are most, most, at once most adverse and most receptive to it. While sometimes the spontaneous frisson of greatness supervenes, while sometimes going off voluntarily and letting maturity have its way works, and sometimes just plain threats of ejection will do wonders. To return to positives, however, Sometimes late in our life with a book, a lecture is welcome. But in the early stages, students shouldn't, as I said, be talked at, but should converse with each other. Great books are ingestible and testable sources of information only by the way and least of all. And finally, a seminar room is really the right and a lecture hall, the wrong physical venue for great book learning. Six, the willingness to admit differential grading, that is to do such grading at all, is constitutive, constitutive of community. And so an adherence to great books is community forming. Let me try here to formulate a thought which some listeners tonight might find unacceptable, even repellent perhaps both at once. 
A proper community requires individual dignity. To be properly together with others, it is necessary to be self-respectingly alone with oneself. And second, to be self-respecting, it is necessary to be open to reverence. By reverence, I mean my capacity for rejoicing in things and beings greater than myself. A bit of the temperament for delighting in greatness mentioned before. Daily proximity to great books enhances that capacity. This community of free fellow learners, for what self-respect plus reference delineates is exactly human freedom. This community of independent and, and receptive colleagues is the body that finds, adopts, and amends the reading list. For this band of tutors, the term <coughs> great does not meet with a resistance stare, but with a sense of shared assumptions. After that come rousing arguments about ranking and quality and pedagogical fitness for pedagogical, pedagogical fitness. By, met, by met pedagogical fitness, I mean that the students are always on the faculty's mind. It is fine that any selection that the faculty has made might be somewhat beyond our students' preparation. Isn't it apt to be, our, to be above ours? But not too much. For example, every year, someone argues that we should get rid of the phenomenology of spirit. And every year it turns out that there was a sufficient number of seniors who were the better for having understood one third of it, better off than having missed out altogether. <clears throat> Number seven, the following may sound like self-contradiction because I've inveighed against introductions and prefaces, be they printed or viva voce. But my idea of being properly prepared for getting hold of one great book is, if it's so-called literature, having learned to read and having lived at least a decade and a half. If it's philosophy, preparation comes from other great books. For example, having read some Aristotle and some Kant as preparation for Hegel, if anything is. So the context of a great book is life or another great book, not a great book derivative. And of course, the liberal arts, the trivium, the trivial arts of expressing thought, and the quadrivium, the quadruple arts of knowing things. These are also the preparation. The feature of greatness that underwrites this claim is the ultimate autonomy of a book so qualified. Nearly every book on our list, which incidentally seems to contain a hundred plus book works I haven't counted, and believe that if other than Western traditions are included, there may be a half, half a thousand, but what's the matter? So nearly every book on our list is self-sufficient, meaning that it contains, at least for student of liberal arts, pretty nearly all the terms, arguments, information and citations needed to stand alone. Hence, comparative liter literature seems to me an unilluminated 
unilluminating study when it comes to works of the highest quality. It does better with run-of-the-mill books. For great treatments, from geometries to cosmologies, from epics to novels, build worlds of their own. Thus, to search several for comparative motives requires scouring away their subtle peculiarities and to get gross outlines. And that's to fall between two stools. At any rate, it's an exercise that should come not first, but last for students, if at all. Number eight, timelessness and beauty are readily conceded to be the marks of greatness, but they require some analysis. Being of its time, be, being required by the times, etc., are phrases with practically unassignable meanings. In some, and time, is time some sort of a box in which happenings eventuate, or is it some rough beast slouching towards Silicon Valley to be born, <laughs> or some force aligning our emotions, or as does an electromagnetic field? If, however, there is such a condition as being of one's time, then the great anthropological philosophers who have unifying insights not into the light, loud, and self-assertive assertive chat of the day, but into the deep, tacit, and common opinions of the era, by, will by that very fact be beyond their time, disembedded embedded from it. And so the books most truly cognizant of present conditions are also most timeless. For example, Thomas Mann's Dr. Faustus, which contains clever simulacra of the philosophies ending up in national socialism, is surely a period piece. But by reason of its insight into the time, into its time, it is a timeless masterpiece. Incidentally, not all fictionalized philosophy is mere death semblance. For example, George Eliot's Middlemarch is full of real philosophizing. This mixing of modes gives grief to, grief to some of my colleagues and joy to me. Beauty is, I think, a practically fixed feature, not only of literary, but also of great expository works. Think of Augustine's Latin, or Bacon's and Hobbes' English. Often the harsher the message, the handsomer its delivery. I might even claim, and don't laugh, that Kant's works are beautiful, insofar as he presents world-inverting novelties and neologisms. However, my most salient meaning of beauty comes from one of those fugitive passages in which brilliant notions often flash by in platonic dialogues. In the Phaedrus, Socrates says, in effect, that beauty is the form, the eidos, of visibility. Beauty is what makes things shine out. And shining out is the most immediate apprehension of greatness. And so beauty is built into its self-presentation, hence, into its very notion. Are there then any ugly great books? Lux, Lux prose is less than elegant. 
versus politics make up for this lack of shine by being photo enlightened. Photo enlightened. No, there are no ugly great books. Number nine, a great book can be life-changing. So can any book, but the great ones have staying power. How do they do it? By preoccupying the soul, the mind, and the affects in a double way. Their message comes in this most captivating dual mood. What an illumination, I say, and immediately add, but I've always known it. We take the book saying in with a sense both of amazement and familiarity, ancient newness. But more important than what we receive is what we invest. Every great book, I know of no exception in any genre, not even mathematical texts, offers a world bidding us to participate. It is a moral proving ground. Here's a great drama. What could Oedipus have done? What might I do effectively to prevent the tragedy? Or is the prevention of a grand tragedy in fact a diminution of the human condition? Here's a great novel, to my mind the greatest of the last century, Paul Scott's Raj Quartet. Would I have overlooked my closest school friend Kumar now a black face in a native crowd, would have broken through colonial taboos, what would it have taken? Great fictions, epics and novels especially, are also the exercise fields of the imagination. Worlds have the so far unexplained ability to raise mental images, and many a great fiction hides its secrets and plays plain sight. To bring them forward, you must develop the ability to form mental imagery, to visualize according to textual intimations that direct you to intercept looks, to see what is salient in a situation, to unveil the unsaid. Here's an example. As you listen to the devil that visits Ivan Karamazov, look carefully at him. It's surely Smerdyakov, the bastard half-brothers look-alike, who's got into Ivan's head, hence onto his sofa, a brazen devil, goading a dithering intellectual. Besides eliciting the exercise of the imagination, while we're within the book, their imaginative uses of the great books, once they're in us, once we've made them our own, they furnish material for how to be and how not to be. In youth, good models have imit invite in imitation and maturity interrogation. When I was dean and about to exert power, simply because I had it, I would call up Lincoln and listen to him. It restored decency. Reading large fictions or systematic philosophy teaches world expansion. That's mundane dailiness sometimes resonates to scenic reminiscences from fiction and sometimes fits itself to framing visions from philosophy. And of course, much reading of intelligently beautiful prose. 
will contribute to our linguistic alertness and expressive deafness. These are the safety valves for bad temper and the desire to hurt. Not to speak of our ability to do our own right retelling, to paraphrase justly, which is the best proof that we've apprehended what we've read or heard and that we've let it work on us, maybe enhance, maybe improve us. And so the last one, number 10. Now finally to mark to the mark of a book's greatness that I regard as absolutely unfailing. Almost every great book has an unabashedly repellent anti-hero, meager, mean, malicious, evil. Usually it's a human being, sometimes a doctor, sometimes an institution, even an empire, more rarely a real devil. And every such villain in a really great book has a moment of grace, and with it, the work rises from great to sublime. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Braun. We have time for some questions, uh, which I'm happy to, to feel. Uh, yes. Um, so why do the works have to be made mandatory? Like, how does, um, you said, it's an imposition on the student for the sake of a fuller freedom. Can you just explain that for me? Yes, sure, sure, sure. So the question is, uh, sorry, the question is, why do you have to make great works mandatory? Why, why, would you, why do you impose on students for the sake of a greater freedom? Would you guarantee that they'd read them on their own? Would I guarantee that they would read them? Uh, I guarantee they would not read them. <laughs> That's the answer. <laughs> but, but what I want to know is, I mean, there are many things that I can guarantee people would do if I made them do them. But most of those things, I would not say they were for the sake of freedom. Yeah, but look, it's true that we that our program is all required, but it's not required to come to St. John's. So these are intermediately imposed upon them, right? They've chosen to be imposed upon. So what, I could even argue that we don't, we don't impose anything on anybody who isn't willingly there to do it. I, I certainly look, here's what I, I would, if, if I were education, sorry, I sometimes have these grandiose dreams, I'm education sorry. You know what I do in the, when children are four or five, I, I should teach kindergarten, so two, three, four, five, everyone would learn to dance the minuet. That's all. Do nothing else. So, <laughs> It, it would work wonders. Other questions? Any other questions? Are there any works or authors that Wait, are... Wait, what did you do with the baby? I gave it to my wife. Pretend <laughs> 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 uh, Are there any works or authors that are often considered part of the great books, but according to your concept should not be for one reason or another? There are... Uh, there are books that I dislike intensely. Um, some uh, Protestant theologians that I can't, just don't understand. Uh, there is uh, 
I don't like, I, I don't like being near to <laughs> but my, my colleagues know better than you. I, I, I could revise a list more to my liking, but I, I wouldn't. There, there certainly are books that are. But we used to read the Justinian, boring, uh, and we got rid of them eventually. Um, so this or that book doesn't seem to me be, to be worthy or to... And then, of course, there's some books that just won't work well for seminar discussion, that is for, for... See, I want to say, I say discussion because that's the common word. We don't have discussions or debates. We have conversations. Right? So we need books that are accessible, that people care about, and, and some, so to some small degree, understand. Um, and some books just aren't like that. Okay, like fewer books than people pretend. Donald, I think you've given an argument against tradition in an important way. And given that one of your marks is that this is self-sufficiency, I'm surprised to hear it. <laughs> the self-sufficiency of each great book is a reason not to worry so much about whether the collection of them forms any given tradition or is from something recognized yeah, as that, a tradition. Yeah, I, I agree. And so it's interesting that so many of the existing great books curriculum are not accepted, are committed to something like the Western tradition or yeah. Yeah. European something, or, and, and, and that frames the alternative. So, you know, when John says, say John says a Eastern yeah. curriculum, then yeah. that's an alternative yeah. rather than something that's integrated, part and yeah. parcel. Yeah. Um, I, is there good reasons that, and bad reasons? The bad reasons are inertia, right? People receive lists and they use them. Because, I mean, how much work do you have to do to make up your own lists in a generally original way? So partly, uh, it's inheritance, and it's lazy, but it's better than nothing. Um, but uh, the lack of integration is because we we think that the reading of great books ought to be backed up by the liberal arts, which include languages. Greek and French are our languages, and they help us a great deal with reading what we think of as the main works. You know. mm -hmm. um, now, if we try to integrate the Asian classics, we can't do the languages, whereas when they do, when we do it by themselves, they do study, they have an option to study uh, uh, Chinese and um, no, Sanskrit, I think, right? So you know, Sanskrit. Yeah. Sanskrit, yeah, of course. Yeah. In the back there, yes, great. Thank you for your paper. Um, I was, your first, I think, eight points were about books. And my question is about readers or students. I think your nine point speaks to it, but I'd like to hear more. What do great books presuppose or require of people who would read them fruitfully? Prudently, did you say? Fruit fruitfully. Oh, fruitfully, yeah. Prudently isn't, isn't in it. <laughs> yeah, fruitfully. Um, well, we, uh, we do sometimes admit students to the college who haven't graduated yet. We've, on occasion, admit, admit it 16 years, doesn't work. So you need what 
a reasonable high school education kids. You have to be able to read, to know some algebra, you know, to read and figure some. But I think we would agree that a minimum of what is what you get in ordinary education is enough. In other words, that no special preparation is necessary for reading these books because they tend to be self-sufficient. And because one of the things I, for one, would like our students to learn to do, they learn it all too easily and in the wrong way, but, uh, which is that you don't have to understand everything when you read a book. You, know, you don't know a certain fact or you can't make out a certain argument. Um, last week we were reading... Um, the Aristotle's physics. In the eighth book, Aristotle gives arguments for the unmoved mover. I sat there all night and said to myself, I'm crazy or I don't understand any of this. And finally, they said, my life isn't going to be ruined if I don't understand these arguments. I said this to my class. My co-leader, we always co-lead the seminars, looked shocked, but they do. <laughs> They've done exactly the same thing, forgotten about it. Yeah. So you have to learn that you don't need to know everything to understand a book. Then one day you might want to focus on it, and then you have to be complete. If, if I could just add a little bit. I'm a man in my 60s, and I'm a graduate of St. John's 40 years ago. Um, Brown is 90 this year, I believe. Yes. Um, I think part of the way to, to think of how someone can read fruitfully is a commitment to keep reading. You don't graduate from St. John's and that's it, or any other program. I would say, you know, St. John's is a program, it's not the program, right? It, it's, um, it's, it's the nature of the individual's commitment to keep, keep reading, keep thinking. And I very much appreciate your point about reverence because Inherent in that is the, is the idea that there's always more to learn, that there's always something beyond your reach that you can get closer to it, that sort of asymptotic relationship with wisdom, knowledge, etc. Yeah, the point you make about keeping on is of the essence, and to go visit a city in America means usually to attend a seminar with Johnnies who live there. That's the idea of fun. Thanks very much for your talk. Um, when you were talking about um, you know, being in a seminar conversation, not talking at students, I think that's a wonderful suggestion. It's very important not to be the kind of authoritative yeah. lecturer. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that idea is maybe in a little bit of tension or maybe a bit of a paradox with something that you mentioned at the beginning of your talk about providing oneself as a model to one's students. That is to say, how one wants to avoid, on the one hand, being a kind of lecturer or authority figure, but on the other hand, how one also wants to be someone worth imitating. Yeah, well, I have co-leader. I, I love him dearly but he's peculiar. <laughs> and uh, he exemplifies the answer to your question. We've been reading Aristotle for the past three weeks. Uh, it's that time, springtime. 
<laughs> the time for Aristotle. <laughs> and but he's been this way all year. During the seminar, they think of us as yin and yang. You know, I, I, Zeno's heard this before, but I exemplify sort of chief, universal chief. He exemplifies cosmic agony. So <laughs> he goes like this. And then he goes like this. And then he goes like this. And in that way, he shows the students. And I think they, they like him very much. And I think they take it in that this is of great importance to him. In other words, it has nothing to do with what he says, but what, by what he figures for them. Great involvement, it matters. And uh, that's what I mean, that you showed by the fact that, um, we're not absent from seminar, we don't come late to seminar. Um, we're prepared, we are all there. We don't look bored. We listen to what you know students talk, we listen to them, sometimes paraphrase them afterwards. Uh, and actually, you know, paraphrasing by and large I think is good because if you do it wrong, they take great pleasure and showing you that you haven't got it. If you do it right, they're proud of the fact that they've said something intelligible. So it's, uh, uh, it works more by uh, example than by saying something very, by preaching anything. Um, so you, you talked about how um, great books are better for study in and of themselves and not as good for comparison. But in my experience, when I read what I think are great books, they seem to elicit comparison and connection as I read them to other things. As a student, how do you balance reading a book for itself then also allowing it to kind of shoot threads to other things it's, that you've learned before? It's a very interesting question. I'm a great believer, and I think most of my colleagues, well, uh, one of my colleagues can say what I'm saying is true or false, but I believe that the primary approach to a book is to regard it as a world of its own and not to do anything that comes close to comparative uh, literature. That's the beginning that this book makes its own world. But that clearly isn't enough. The books speak to each other. And in particular, uh, it is true that the earlier books are preparation for reading the later books. And that's as much of a setting as we look for. What else could one do that's really useful? One can read secondary literature, but uh, useful. Any other question? That's it. I mean, does it matter? Yeah. Um, how do you tell which contemporary books are truly great by your standards? Look, this is a fascinating question to me. Uh, there are books where you know right off. For instance, uh, uh, I've just finished, not the whole, but I read the first and the last in the uh, My Brilliant Friends series. 
the uh, Eleanor, uh, Eleanor uh, Ferrante. I think that's a great book. Uh, I think it's great because it is so infinitely uh, careful about tying up all the nuts. There's no, there's no, nothing slips away, nothing's left unresolved, except on purpose, when irresolution is what, what she wants to convey. Uh, I thought I could tell, I mean, if you ask me now, it's a great book, I would say it will enter into world literature as a great book. So sometimes you know, but sometimes it takes a while, I mean, before you even hear of it, and uh, then uh, and then there's an additional difficulty that more and more books are read, are written and read every year, and there's just too much. So whether the best thing is slipping away from me, I don't know. And if I would recognize it, it might be, it might be a generation beyond me. Generation, generally speaking, I don't believe in generations. About in, in at least in the classroom, it doesn't matter very much, as far as I can tell. But um, it could be uh, that there's some things I was born too early to understand or get hold of. So it's a problem whether we've whether we've caught, we do better with the sciences and with mathematics. I, there's always someone on the faculty who knows what mathematics is going to be truly interesting. We can't often do it because we're not technically up to it. There are probably uh, people who, especially if they've done philosophy in graduate school, know what is currently really interesting. But uh, especially in literature, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how to solve that problem. It's, it's going to get worse. So the, the answer is we sort of bang along. Someone, it usually depends on someone discovering something and being full of enthusiasm and uh, persuading uh, the uh, committee that works on the list to add. The trouble with adding something is you can't add something unless you take something out. And usually it turns out the thing you added wasn't as good as the thing. We have this kind of thing recently. They took out of all things our instruction committee, who was supposed to be wise. <laughs> of all things, they took up William James. How can we do such a thing? Well, they did it, but I think we'll get it back before long. <laughs> Any final questions? Yes. You mentioned in your remarks that one of the distinctive uh, characteristics of great books is that they raise questions. And I was just struck by the fact that I think in my experience, a lot of times people go to great book seeking an answer or because this wise voice has something important to resolve for me. Would you say that seeking some sort of truth or resolving problems is an unhelpful way to approach great books, and then maybe an apparatic approach uh, is essential to a great book? Yeah, if, if I'm understanding you, the question is, do, I mean, there are people who say, I remember someone who used to spend a lot of time at the, some of you will know Tom West. He used to come to visit our college, very fine. 
was translator of, of Plato and a writer and so on. And uh, he, he had a sort of half and half admiration. And he used to say that uh, students come to St. John's knowing nothing, and they leave knowing that they know nothing. <laughs> there was truth in that, and it's connected to your question. Is, are we, do we only ask questions or do we answer them? And it seems to me that uh, I'm very, very much for answering questions. I don't understand why you would ask questions if you don't want the answer. <laughs> you, sometimes you can't get it. But, uh, I was uh, telling Zina on the way up, I had a phone call from a man with an absolutely splendiferous name. <laughs> His name is Ivan Romanovich Siritsev. How, how can you have a more glorious name? I asked him, he's not related to the Romanovs, he says. But, <laughs> um, and he phoned me, I'm not, he was senior, he phoned me and uh, I didn't know him. He said, Miss Brian, I've got a really important question. Can I come over? I said, come on over and we'll talk. And the question was, um, can, and this is a case where the answer was important to him, right? Uh, can I live the life of contemplation combined with the life of action? In other words, I want everything. And uh, it, we talk among other things about whether, I asked him, in fact, I said, look, is this a theoretical question for you or a personal question? And he's, he's honest, he says, it's really a personal question. And I was, but everything should be a personal question. So we talked about, and I have to tell him, I had to tell him, you've heard all this stuff, I'll say it again. I, I said, look, um, if you, I think not only can you combine them, I think they're by nature complementary. But here's a misgiving I have about you, about your solution. If you devote yourself to the life of contemplation, Monday morning at 7.01 a.m., you're a man devoted to contemplation. What are you going to do? And it gave him pause. It was interesting. <laughs> you have to ask yourself, you, you get an answer. My answer was, yes, of course you can. And then the question is, how exactly? So I'm all for finding solutions, doubting the solutions. You know, and I was fussing around. <laughs> On that note, please join me in thanking Ms. Brown again.